What's going on? Welcome to the Matt Bernier Show, part of the In The Money Media Network. My name is Matt Bernier. You can follow me on Twitter at Bernier underscore Matt. This is Monday, July the 20th, 2020. It's episode 24. I had to do a little double check there of the Matt Bernier Show for the In The Money Media Network. If you're curious about getting involved or how you listen to this thing, I'll give you the rundown. You can find this podcast in a number of different spots. If you're looking audio only, you have Apple Podcasts, you have the Android devices, however you find your podcasts over there. You have InTheMoneyPodcast.com where you can find this program. You can find the flagship show, the In The Money Players Podcast. You can find the Racing Picks Players Podcast. You can find that at the end of the week. You can find Talk Racing to Me with Naomi Tucker. You can find the Redboard Rewind with Spencer Luganbuehl. You can find JK Plus One obviously with JK, Jonathan Kinchin. Uh, you can find a million different things over on InTheMoneyPodcast.com. You can also find this show on YouTube. All you need to do, go over to YouTube in that search bar, type in Matt Bernier Show. This one will pop up along with all the other ones that have been recorded thus far. This week, we're going to go over the Friday feature, which is going to be Saratoga's eighth race with this week's guest, Tommy Seafeld. I believe there were only two folks that chose the winner last week. It was Tommy and Andrew Wright. Thank you to both of you, and thank you to everyone who has gotten involved. I think it's been off to a great start. This is a fun thing. I enjoy hearing everyone else's opinions and thoughts and, and even even selections that don't end up panning out. I'm curious to see, and I'm glad that those of you that have been leaving selections, for the most part, you put a little bit of reasoning why you like certain horses and things like that. So it's been enlightening for me. I've enjoyed listening to it and seeing what people are saying. And obviously the guest, it's been a nice little wrinkle to the show. So Tommy Seafell will be on. It's unfortunately going to be a little bit shorter just simply because, I mean, look, it's it's real life and people have to work. And, and Tommy's getting off work around, I'm not going to say the time, but the point is we're going to have to keep it a little bit tight simply because i got to get the videos over to uh, producer Craig. I don't know how the whole DJ Unstable thing started. Fornatel calls him that all the time. i got to figure the, the backstory of that out. But producer Craig, from way back in the DRF days, he's now doing some freelance things along with his real work. I need to get the clips over to him in time so this thing can get up onto YouTube in good order. So uh, probably only 10, 15 minutes with Tommy. Uh, outside of that, I'm going to very briefly touch on two races and only two races. I know it was opening week at Saratoga. I know there were stakes races all over the joint. The Haskell and the Coaching Club American Oaks. Because... I, I saw a number of different things and opinions about what people thought of the two races. I'm going to very briefly, briefly touch on those. That'll be at the end of the show. In between the two, in between the Friday feature and in between the sort of analysis of those two races, um, I I think there's a, a segment that some folks had been bringing up back a few weeks ago when I, I was listening to you know the constructive criticism and things that need to change a little bit and tweak just to make things more interesting. A lot of people were interested in sort of the, I'm going to call it air quotes, horse heroes. Some of my favorites and, and your favorite horses and, and t touch on some of those sort of things. So um, for me, I'm going to call it story time. That'll be the name of it. I don't know if it's going to be a weekly thing, but I figured this week it's 100 degrees outside the racing this past week. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, we could do a whole rundown of all that stuff like I did the week before, but well, let's change it up a little bit. I'm going to talk about the horse that without him, and some of you have heard this story before, but some of you haven't. Uh, without this individual horse, none of this stuff, you don't listen to me, you don't hear from me, you don't see me doing any of these things without this horse, this one horse. So we'll dive into him. He'll be part of story time. And at the very end of the show, a quick Q&A, because there were a few interesting comments uh, that I felt like we should probably touch on. If you're interested in leaving a comment for Q&A, or you're interested in getting involved potentially for next Monday's pod about being on for the Friday feature, talking about a race from wherever it may be, you need to leave your selection beneath the video player on YouTube. It's the only place that I'm going to take any kind of correct answers. 
And like I said, if you're interested in sort of the Q&A piece, I get it. Twitter, it's there, at Bernie or underscore Matt. A lot of stuff goes on over there, though. Leave it beneath the video player on YouTube. It's the easiest place for me to go and see things. So um, let's roll it now into the segment with Tommy Seafeld. We'll be talking about the eighth race at Saratoga on Friday. Full field on the main track. No, it's not the stakes race, but I think it's an interesting one, and we'll see what Tommy has to say. So here we go. Friday feature time. If you're interested in getting involved for next week, you need to pick the winner of this race, Saratoga's eighth, Leave it beneath the video player on YouTube. Let's see what Tommy Seafeld has to say about this week's Friday feature. All right, Friday feature time. Last week's race up at Saratoga, Tommy Seafeld was one of the folks who correctly identified Chad Brown's horse, uh, Indian Pride, to get the job done. Tommy, well done. Tip of the cap to you. First things first, thank you for doing this on the heels of that. I know we needed to got to, you know, figure out schedules and make everything work. I, I'm glad this could happen. And again, thank you for making a little bit of time. Yeah, I really appreciate you working with my work schedule, too. Uh, I know you normally do these types of things in the morning, but I appreciate you waiting until the afternoon so I can pop on. Of course, and I think uh, if people continue to enjoy this sort of segment, I, you know, I'm more than willing to be flexible. That's the whole point is just try to get as many people involved. Um, for the listeners, for the viewers, whoever's checking this thing out, however they're checking it out, a little bit of background on yourself. Yeah, sure. So, uh I am spoiled to actually live about 40 minutes outside of Saratoga. Oh, buddy. Uh, I grew up a little bit closer than that in a small town in Burnt Hills, New York. Uh, I live just outside of Albany now. Um, I don't think it really uh, hit me until, like, my mid-20s how spoiled I am to have Saratoga, like, right in my backyard. Um, so generally, when it comes to racing, I'm focusing on Naira, uh, specifically Saratoga, when it's here. A uh, little, little bittersweet that we can't be there for right now, but it's definitely exciting to have the meet started up and everything for sure. I was going to say, so for for anyone like yourself that's reasonably close, sort of in that upstate area, and and to your point as well. I mean, I was I didn't realize that I was spoiled. Everyone just assumes that like Suffolk Downs is my home track, first track I ever went to was Saratoga, and that was the closest yeah. one. Saratoga was closer for me, or basically equidistant to Suffolk compared to where I grew up. Uh, what is, you know, is there, what's the overall feel up there? Because I'm going there in a few weeks when we've got an NBC show, but for the most part, I know how important it is to the area, and for it to not be going on, what's the sort of vibe? I think it's general disappointment, I would say. Um, I mean, I saw the numbers that the handle is up. Yeah, so huge. for whatever for whatever that's worth, but ah, man, the meat is such a staple of the whole capital region. Um, I know like businesses in downtown Saratoga and stuff are trying to make pivots and plays and stuff to kind of see what they can do to bring people in, but obviously it's not it's not going to be the same as the meat being open. I know from just a racing perspective, we're happy to have it back, but um, I. The general vibe is a little bit a little bit on the disappointment side. And I think something else, too, and correct me if I'm wrong in this sort of assessment of the area, I think a lot of people that aren't familiar with Saratoga don't realize that it's also, I don't want to call it a college town, but Skidmore's right there, correct? Yes, yes, so, Skidmore's so, right there. It is like downtown Saratoga is active, and I think it probably would be in the summer without the racing anyway, but obviously the whole pandemic has thrown a completely different wrinkle into all of that life um so it's just it's tricky for sure and that was i, I remember talking with some different folks when we were unsure whether or not they were going to go up or they're going to stay at belmont whatever it was and it was like we're going to go up there but it's it's not you know everyone it feels like whether you're at the paddock bar or you're in the picnic area you know in the backyard and you're planning on okay well once 
once the feature's done or once the nightcap's done, now where are we going to go? Are we going to go down Carolina? Right. Are we going to go to, you know, wherever wherever it may end up being? So definitely a little bit of a, a different situation, but the fact that we are still up there at the spa, I guess that's a positive, and that rolls us into this week's Friday feature. And I, when I first contacted you, I, I recognize it's not the stakes race. It's not the quick call, but... You know, there's only seven horses in that race. I haven't looked far enough ahead at the forecast just because I was traveling on Sunday. I don't know whether it looks like it's great weather or bad weather or whatever the case may be. But I do know the eighth race, you've got salty older horses. They're going six furlongs on the main track. It's an N2X. You've got horses that look like they're either on the upswing or potentially on the downswing of their career. Um, Let's start off with sort of your core beliefs and your core philosophy. How do you go through handicapping a race? Yeah, sure. I'm actually kind of glad you didn't end up picking the quick call. I struggle with turf. <laughs> turf sprints are tough. They're brutal. And that's definitely not my area of expertise. So seeing you pivot from that, I wasn't too disappointed. <laughs> um, I usually start out trying to kind of map out where everybody is going to position themselves to start out the race. So I like to kind of try and make, paint a picture of on that first pace call mm-hmm. um, where, where our horse is going to be sitting. And I kind of take it from there if we've got you know multiple horses that want to be on the front then maybe i'm looking for someone that can sit mid-pack or close um and after i kind of go through that i'll start diving into truly who have these horses been running against what type of figures have they been running and that type of thing but i'm i'm kind of really pace driven definitely to start out is it that way for both dirt and turf sprint route in general just sort of kind of top to bottom who's going to the front and then assess from there yeah, that's basically how I try and start it out. And just like I said, basically paint that picture of where are these horses going to be sitting and who might this type of situation favor, and then just kind of work back from there. Now, before we get into the nuts and bolts about specific horses in this race, you know, I kind of to the point that I brought up earlier, the idea that some of these horses feel like you still may see a forward move in them as opposed to some of the other ones who are making a little bit long in the tooth. Perhaps they're going the opposite direction. At what point do you look at it one way or the other and say, you know what, this is a horse that's maybe not stepping up in class necessarily, but is taking on seasoned older veteran horses. Conversely, you've got those seasoned veterans who maybe the fastball instead of 95 miles an hour, maybe now it's only 92, but perhaps they can still get by. At what point do you sort of pivot from one to the other where you want the upside as opposed to the known commodity? I think at this point in the year, it's probably a little easier to take a horse that is maybe trending more in the right direction that might still have some upside than an older horse who has already run a couple of times this year and you might already know, well, now we're looking at a six or a seven-year-old in July. Is there going to be a forward move there? Um, So I think now that we're in the summer, I mean, if these older horses have had like two or three races already this year and just haven't had much to work off of any type of you know glimmer of hope that they've still got that fastball at 95 then i'm probably probably gonna shy away now i I agree 100 percent. i feel like this is the time whether it is four-year-olds against you know kind of what we're dealing with here five six seven eight-year-olds or it's the three-year-olds this time of year to me this is usually when you're going to get you're going to get another move from some of those younger, more inexperienced horses as opposed to those horses that you kind of, they are what they are. And that doesn't mean that they can't win, but you kind of know what you've got there as opposed to sort of the unknown commodity where perhaps they can take that next step forward. So getting into some of the horses here in this race, you know, you've got an interesting runner on the outside for Diodoro who's very lightly raced, but on numbers is relatively quick and strike that. 
you know, you've got a horse like Free Enterprise for Chad. Whether you believe the horse is good enough or not, probably going to take money just because of the connections. Uh, and then, to me, you know, Hawaiian Noises, we've heard of him in the past. He's been out for Wesley Ward. Um, Chateau is in here. You've got a number of interesting runners, including Mount Travers down on the inside. And I feel like he's going to be, I don't want to say the key to the race, but in many ways it feels like he is sort of the de facto horse who could potentially take that giant step forward. Um, how did you necessarily assess the pace situation, and who were you looking at specifically in here? So from a pace per perspective first, I think it's probably going to be a pretty reasonable pace. Uh, the five show looks like he's just got one way to go, and it's going to be forward. Um, one of those horses coming out of the service barn that is just like a you know, people need to decide what they want to do with him. Uh, the first the first start after that, his last race, didn't seem the best. Um, so I don't know if that's going to be. I'm kind of taking the stance with those horses that I, I'll let them me one time mm -hmm. before I'm going to plop any of my own money down on them. Um, so some others that had some speed, like you said, the nine strike that. Um, that's kind of the direction I was leaning myself. Um, the trip that I was sort of envisioning was maybe um, the two uh, runway loot. Runaway loot also seemed like he had a little bit of speed and breaking from the inside probably has to go on with it a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I figured Chateau would probably make the lead with runaway loot sitting second. And then I was kind of hoping strike that could be uh, outside sitting third. He's shown that he can pa pass horses in the past. Um, and just looking at the last race, uh, got smoked a little bit by Volatile, but I think that's that's fine. Who hasn't um, gotten smoked by Volatile, it seems right, like. I, I know he's lightly raced, but boy, he looks like a serious horse. I'm hoping we see him on Saturday. Yeah. Um, if he's going to go in the Vanderbilt, we'll see. I'm hoping for it because I want to see him run. Um, so my eyes kind of went toward strike that. Um, you talked about uh, the one Mount Travers. I, I kind of, after first looking at the race, was maybe thinking about grabbing a closer and then i look the best three races for him are all on kind of like your sloppy muddy mm -hmm. surfaces so i mean i didn't really look ahead of the weather too too much but i mean it is hot out right now yeah. and it's been hot so i'm assuming a fast track and i i just don't know if we're going to get the same performance on a fast track since those three races pretty significantly stronger than the others do you make anything of not only I agree with you 100% about the wet track situation where he's two for four lifetime, three for four in the exact on off going, but he, I'm not saying that he ran poorly in the run at Belmont, but it, it, I mean, the victories so far have come in the mid-Atlantic. And I mean, it's, I, I think it's a little bit of an unfair thing to just immediately say that the mid-Atlantic is not quite what New York is, but I think mm -hmm. there's also a bit of reality to it where the water does get deeper if you go north from Maryland, from Delaware, from Pennsylvania, did that factor at all into it, or was it just simply a matter of this is a horse that's probably going to be making up ground or having to make up ground? It's going to be a short price. Yeah, that that didn't play as much into it for me. Um, Linda Rice has been off to a great start in the first couple of days of the meet. Obviously grabs Jose, who seems like he can do no wrong the first couple of days. I think he's got eight wins already on the opening weekend. Um, so that... That didn't play into it as much for me. Um, I don't know. these The six furlong races at Saratoga, it's kind of tricky. I don't know the exact numbers, but breaking from the rail, he's going to have to pass a lot of horses and swing out wide. And I just don't know if 
there's other good horses in here. He would have to really bring his top performance to get that done. Well, I think you bring up a good point, too. Breaking from the inside, if you don't really have that natural speed that some of these other runners do, A, you're going to get shuffled back, but then B, from there, you need to work out some kind of a trip. And, and who's to say whoever ends up being the speed doesn't stop in your face, you end up right. having to check off heels, all those other, other sort of things. So I think it's something just in general for people to consider, factor into your handicapping, that if you're breaking from the inside, or even I would say post two, if you're not the most fleet of foot early on, there's going to be speed to your outside. They're not going to stay out there. They want to try to get over and save some ground. Inherently, you're going to be in behind horses, and from there you need to hope that you can work out a trip. So just factor that in at a little bit of a shorter price. Outside of the outside runner who you mentioned, that's where you're leaning anyway, strike that. Were there any other horses that you strongly considered on top? The other one that I really considered on top was uh, the number six, Zoomer. Um, kind of on a similar thought to Mount Travers. He's going to be coming from the back in a race that has a pretty decent amount of pace, and I thought he would be a pretty square price. Um, there's a lot of just rock-solid horses in here. Um, the last race, it doesn't look great. Went way wide, but I mean, Fortin Hill looked like a pretty strong horse, and that effort was, you know, decent enough. So, follow, you know, Racing a few lengths behind that horse might not be the worst thing in the world. Um, and I don't know, if this horse can pick up some pieces and run second on a pretty square number, I wouldn't complain at all. Yeah, and, and Tommy, I don't know what you use for, for past performances or for speed figures or things like that, but I, this horse specifically from, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the Timeform US ratings, and I, I mean, he fits in here very, very well. But to your point, he's another one that's going to need to pass a number of horses in order right. to get all the money. So. To me, I would look at him and say, if you were going to, I'm not somebody that plays a ton of exactas and tries and things like that, but if you were so inclined, he would be the kind of horse, I think, at a nice square price, I would at the very least be considering probably two through four if I was playing a super. Right, right. That's kind of where I was thinking as well. Um, the other horse that I thought was interesting, but like you said, running for Chad Brown was the seven free enterprise. We know he's going to take money. Um, the two starts so far this year aren't as good as probably what it looks like he was running last year, but getting back to running six furlongs here might be a better spot for him, and he's probably going to get a pretty reasonable trip, similar to the one that I was hoping that the nine strike back could get. Um, in, in these sprint races, um, horses that can just you know stalk and sit outside, yeah, they might end up going wide, but as long as there's nobody in their way, that's kind of the direction that I would like to lean um, so the seven and the nine were the two that kind of fit that profile the most. And I, I you know, p people give me a hard time that I, I take a lot of horses that have speed, but I just, I, I believe that in, inherently in dirt racing, if you're not on the lead, I want to be second or third. I want to be reasonably it's close. It's just, exactly. You have, I don't want to say you have less to do, but you don't have to pass seven horses. And just the way that these dirt tracks typically play, I mean, dirt racing inherently favors speed. So having horses that can be reasonably close I agree with you. I think this is a smart move and a good way to go. Is there any concern before we, we let you go and we wrap things up? We strike that. Is there any concern regarding the layoff that we haven't seen him since the end of April? I mean, a little bit. But is there is there a chance that Volatile beat him up so good that they just wanted to give him a little bit of a break? For is sure. A possibility? For sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I guess that would be a positive spin. I would try and put it on that type of thing. But yeah, there's a little bit of concern off the layoff. Um, but I just thought that the potential trip that you could get kind of outweighed the potential negative of, you know, 
not racing in a few months. I also think it's something to consider, and I don't know what the situation is about, you know, how often Deodoro runs at Ellis Park, but the horse does have a workout at Ellis, and then they shipped him all the way up to Saratoga. So I have to look at that. You know, maybe that's really trying to get into the weeds, looking, you know, reading between <laughs> the lines, but I have to look at that and say, you, you could have run him in Kentucky. You chose to send him up here against Tougher. Maybe that's a vote of confidence for this horse. And, you know, I mean, he's still technically eligible where he's not in for the tag. So, you know, that that's also something to keep in mind, too, for a number of these of these connections and horses in situations like this. So, Tommy Seafeld, ultimately, race eight at Saratoga. I'm going to call it the Friday feature. It's not technically the feature. It's the Friday feature, though. Race eight, final pick. I will land on the nine, strike that. Just uh, hope that the outside stalking trip, sitting second, probably third, uh, and then run them down late. I love the race design. I love the setup, the shape that you've sort of envisioned this whole thing working out. I agree with you, and it's the beauty of breaking from the outside. You can kind of see what happens to your inside. If somebody doesn't break alertly, you can be a little bit more forwardly placed, as this horse has been in the past. Or if you get two or three of them that want to line up, you just sit off the flank of the one in third and just take your chance around in the far turn. So I think it's sound reasoning, sound logic. We'll find out if the horse can run to it. Tommy, are you on Twitter? I am. Uh Simple to find me. It's just at Tommy Seafeld. So S-E-E-F-E-L-D for the last name. Easy as that. Awesome. Tommy, thank you so much for the time. Congrats on last week. And maybe, who who knows, maybe we'll be talking again next Monday if, if Strike That can get it done. And if if there are multiples, then we'll, you know, I'll get out the old Google machine and pull out some sort of a random number generator. And maybe you'll get lucky again in that situation. But uh, well done last week. Thanks for coming on. I thought this was great analysis. And uh, best of luck here. Yeah, I really appreciate you having me on, Matt. Thank you. Thank you again to Tommy Seafeld for helping out for this week and looking at Saratoga's 8th. That is going to be the Friday feature for this week. If you want to get involved and be in the position that Tommy was this week, what you need to do, submit your selection. I need the video player on YouTube. If you pick the winner and you are the only one, I'll contact you. We'll figure it out. We'll get you ready to go for next Monday. If there are multiple people that pick the winner, I will use the old random number generator, whichever one it spits out. I'll give you a shout. If no one selects the winner, but you pick the horse that runs second, we'll just keep going down the list. I'll randomly draw from the second place finishers and so on and so forth. So uh, thank you again to Tommy for helping out. And again, if you want to get involved, Saratoga Race 8 Beneath the Video Player on YouTube. Now, story time. Take a seat, get comfortable, feel good. We're going to talk about the horse for me that started the whole thing. Without him, without Jersey Town, you're seeing his past performances right here. You're not listening to this podcast because there is no podcast, or if there is, nobody really cares. You don't get this, I'm not doing any of this other stuff without this horse right here, Jersey Town. Now, 2010 Cigar Mile. A few weeks earlier, the Breeders' Cup, I am at the Bradley Teletheater, the OTB in Windsor Locks, Connecticut. Anybody that's familiar with the Northeast, it's directly across the street from Bradley International Airport. Me and some friends go down. Watch the Breeders' Cup, watch Zenyatta get beat by blame. A few weeks later, I'm home at my parents. I'm not betting the race, but I see this. This horse at 34 to 1 going out there and strutting his stuff and having a chance. And I go, look at, uh, look at this guy on the outside, Jersey Town. Now, in races that I don't bet on, I don't mind to see some chaos. And look, in races that I do bet, if I bet on the chaos, I, of course I'd like to see it. But I'm watching this stretch run. I go, he's got a chance against some good horses. Vineyard, Vineyard Haven's in here, Girolamo, uh, Hainesfield's down on the inside. It's a pretty good field. And look at this horse. 
Look at my guy, Jersey Town. Gets his nose down at a million to one. Pays something like $70. So I think that's kind of neat. I mean, I don't have any skin in the game. But all of a sudden, I became a fan of his. I thought, it was, you know what? Cool. Good on him. He got all the money. He got the shine for one day. Let's see what he does going forward. Well, you can see 2011 here. Okay, second runner-up in the four. Go behind a good horse in Jackson Bend. Don't want to take that away from him. But other than that, a bit of a dud. Didn't really do much. Couldn't, couldn't warm up Uncle Mo, who freaked out in the Kelso in 2011. So, okay, fine. He had his day, and, and that was it. That was, you know, I mean, that was his defining moment, winning the Cigar Mile. But not for me with this horse. We have more, we have more to go. We turn the, the calendar over to 2012. Season starts off a little light. Runs well enough in Sir Shackleton. Six and a half, probably too short for him. Goes up to Saratoga after another bit of a layoff. Runs kind of a flat sort of situation there in the Vanderbilt. Next start, grade one forego. I happened to be up at Saratoga that day. Down on the rail, I like this horse. I go, you know, he's got the back class. I know there's some good horses in here, but he's going to be a good price. And I got to give him a look. Got to give him a chance. I think there's a real scenario. He works out a really nice trip. I think he can pop here at a decent number. He goes off at 9-1. to one. Now, I'm going to show you this as we go into and around the far turn. You're going to know he is in the pocket right now. This is the trip of all trips. And I'll rewind it a little bit. Because he's down here. This horse right here. I know you just missed the top two. Pacific Ocean and MC. Jersey Town, though, has Edgar Prado aboard. Sit in the pocket. Everything's looking great. This was the day and arguably the performance that made me start to realize, you know what, there's something to this whole track bias thing. Because I didn't think inside was where you wanted to be at Saratoga this day. So you can understand, maybe in the, the heat of the moment I didn't believe this, but upon further review, and who knows, maybe if I went back now and looked at it, I'd think differently. But at the time, I said, you know what, I like this pocket trip and watch this decisive move right now. Edgar's going to see a hole and say, you know what, we're taking it. And bang, he spurts through. I say, he's, he's, got a, he's got a length on the field right now, turning for home. And the horse on the outside, his main competition, the favorite, MC, he's all out. We'll get a big chance here. We're going to get a $20 mutual. And then I look at it a little bit more after the race is over, and you can see my boy is just kind of in deep water. Also note the horse down at the back on the inside, not moving anywhere. The horses on the outside are the ones rallying. MC goes on, does his thing. Look, MC was a really nice horse. I don't remember if it was Kieran or if it was Saeed Ben Sarur or whoever had the horse. But MC was a good one. But I watched that race and I go, damn, I, thought, I think I'm right. I thought this horse was ready to go for a spot like this. And I think the track was the thing that got him beat because that, that sort of decisive burst, you don't usually see that on dirt. So for him to be able to do that, I'm thinking, you know, there's got to be something, still something here. But you know what? He ran well. Uh, good effort for him. I'm happy for him. Then I see that he's showing up in the Kelso. Later that month, Belmont Park. Super Saturday. Whatever that's called, I believe. Super Saturday, I know they've used that moniker for a different bunch of different tracks. DRF Bets was putting on a contest. Two weekend event. $10 win bets. I believe you maxed out at 10 of them. Something like that. I'm butchering the rules a little bit. It was something along the lines of 10 $10 win bets. Top two winners, top two finishers, win seats to the NHC that following January. I have no, I've never played in a contest in my life. 
I have no interest in, I, I don't know anything about contests. But I knew I was going to bet this horse in the Kelso. Why? Not just because of what I thought I had figured out from the forego, but when I knew he'd be a good price because of the presence of two horses, and two horses specifically. And I'm not even including Tapazar. One was Shackelford, who, really nice horse. Probably a little bit underrated, if we're being honest. But a really nice horse. I just uh, didn't think he really enjoyed a wet track. Or a track with moisture in it, let's say. Belmont Park, they had some rain overnight. The other horse was To Honor and Serve. And To Honor and Serve was, to me, sort of the, the definition of the type of horse that if he got into a bit of a fight, he was going to pack it in and say, I don't want to do this. You allow him to get out there and strut his stuff, he's going to put on a show. You give him a little bit of resistance, no mas, I don't want to do this. So I, I kind of looked at those two things and said, well, those are reasons enough to be intrigued in, in seeing if there's an alternative. But when I knew Jersey Town was in there, I can couple those two things with the fact that I think he ran his eyeballs out in the forego, and I don't think he got beat. I think the track beat him. I put all those together, and I say, you know what? We're going to get a good price. I'm going to bet him no matter what, and this contest is going on, so what the hell? We'll give it a shot. So I enter the contest. I put in all my bets, and I leave. I don't even watch the races. I go out and play golf with my buddy Pete in western Massachusetts. And we get to the turn, and I go, let me just look and see how this thing is going. And I'm up the leaderboard. I don't even know where, but I'm in, like, top three. And I'm going, holy Jesus, what's happening here? What, like, you know, and I'm looking at the bankroll, and the bankroll is nice and solid. And I go, what, what happened? And I look at the results. And I see this race has been run. 2012 Kelso. I'm going to play this one in its entirety because I still love it. You're going to see a few different things here. You're going to see when Tuana and Serve is at the back of the pack, I'm looking at it going, he's basically done. Because, I, again, I don't think he wants anything to do with any kind of, I don't want to say resistance, but any kind of adversity. I think he's a fair weather type. So more or less draw a line through him. Tapazar was a fine horse. I don't want to, you know, talk anything negative about him. But I didn't think he was any kind of a monster. I was certainly concerned about the top two that are out there cutting out the fractions right now. Trickmeister, maybe he was a little bit overmatched, but on his best day, he could certainly run with these. And Shackelford, what else do you need to say? Shackelford. He was always a sweaty mess, but he was a good racehorse. I just, there was that nagging thing with me that I just didn't think he really appreciated a wet track. So when I'm watching the replay of this, and I see my son right here, this is the original son, by the way, he's down here in the pocket, and he's got Javier aboard this day. And I see right now, I go, boy, Javier's got a... He's either got a lot of horse or there's nothing there. And he's just kind of cruising along. But I think he's loaded for bear. And it's a matter of, at this point right here, I go, this is what I just watched at Saratoga a few weeks earlier. It's the exact same situation, just different names. He's in the pocket. He looks like he's loaded. Prado chose to go to the inside that day, which I'm not blaming Prado for that. It just ended up not working out because the track, I think, was not in their favor. When there was a hole, take it. If you've got the horse, why not? Here... I'm looking at it going, it's, it's the exact same thing. This time, Javier's going to angle out into the 3-4 path, splits these two when he sees a little bit of a hole right here. You're going to see him start pushing on him a little bit, and bang, he goes right through. I go, he's going to make Shackleford work. It's going to be an interesting race. It wasn't an interesting race. My boy was feeling good. He went on and dusted this field. Dusted the field. Wins by what? I think four lengths, somewhere thereabouts. And at this point, I'm... I'm on the 10th hole going, what? look at this. We're in the money. 
we got a shot. Now, it was a two-weekend contest. But without this horse here, Jersey Town, winning the Kelso in the way that he does, maybe it's not four, maybe it's three and a half. Splitting hairs at that point. The following weekend, out at Santa Anita, I bet a horse called Coil in the Santa Anita Sprint Championship. I think he was like five to one. Amazombie was running in that race at nine to five. Coil wins. I win the contest. One of two. Go out to Las Vegas to the NHC. I don't do great there. I think I finished with like $92, something like that, $93. Middle of the pack. From there, get a call from a production company in Los Angeles. They want to do a reality show. I meet everyone. We do the horse players show. From there, I get a call from the racing form. They want me to come work for them. I moved down to New York City. I'm in New York for four years, five, four, whatever it was. Come back up here, you know, in the midst of that, NBC, ESPN, Sports Center, da da da, the whole nine. And here we are now. And if it's not, it's all due to this guy right here. Without Jersey Town, none of this happens. To the point where he's framed. I, I, don't, know if, I don't know if the camera can see this very well. But this is my guy. He will always be my favorite. And unless there's another horse that produces a ridiculous windfall, this is always going to be my guy. Barkley Tag. Fittingly enough that I'm talking about this in 2020. He's won the, the Belmont. And he's probably going to be the favorite for the Travers in a few weeks. My guy right here. Jersey Town. He's framed. Anybody that does anything good for me horse racing wise, you get, you get framed. He's in a frame. I'll have another in a frame. Orb's in a frame. I got a couple others. Got all my press things over there from American Pharaoh. This is my guy. Jersey Town. Story time for this week. Do you have a horse that hooked you? That got you into this thing? This thing that we call horse racing? Let me know. Leave the name. Leave a little bit of a description. Maybe I'll have somebody on. Give me the whole rundown, the rationale. Maybe I can find some videos on YouTube. Let me know. Who is your horse that got you into this whole thing? For me, it's my guy. Jersey Town. Story time. Over for this week. Let's go through the Haskell, the CCA Oaks, and two pieces for Q&A this week. I was down at Monmouth this uh, this weekend sweating buckets. <sighs> Seen a lot of people after the race, you know, uh, I think it was Jeremy Ballin on Twitter who said that based on Twitter's reaction, authentic, the winner of the grade one Haskell would be about 40 to one in the Kentucky Derby because no one was impressed. And I get it, you know, for a horse that with that kind of lead, with this sort of the outfit surrounding him, Baffert, Smith, unit, the whole nine, with that kind of setup, you expect him to win by 10. And I really did believe that down the backside. He's going to win by a million. I mean, it's going to be a blowout. So for New York traffic to come back the way that he did, I know a lot of people looked at it and said, not a good effort. I'm not going to try to sit here and convince you otherwise. Was it, you know, a sparkling effort? No. I, I believe there can be more than one thing being true here. You know, for the folks that say he's not a derby horse, I agree with that. But to say that he's not a talented horse or he's not that good because he, you know, he let a horse like New York traffic in or whatever the case may be, I think that's kind of a silly statement. I think did a quick interview with Mike Smith right after the race. And he brought up a number of different points. And I remember watching the race as they live as they came out of the clubhouse turn. And I didn't know if it was 
Mike Smith bringing the horse out of path or two, or it was the horse. In hindsight, when I go back and watch this, and people hear me talk about ears all the time, you know, I think the horse is just a big goofball. I don't think he has any idea really what he's doing. So I, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that the distance is what got him or what got to him at the end. I think New York traffic is a much more professional racehorse, and he kept going the whole way. He, he kept trying. I don't think he's as good as Authentic is. I think Authentic is his own worst enemy at this point in the game. Now, having said that, I don't think he's a Kentucky Derby horse. I don't think 10 furlongs is going to be better. I do think probably a mile is going to be like the ideal distance for him. But to suggest, in my opinion, let me know if you agree or disagree beneath the video player. I, I think his mind is his biggest obstacle right now. I think he feels like a big baby. And they pointed out, I think it was Baffert in the interview we did with Randy Moss. He's a May full. And that may not sound like a big deal, but think of think of babies, right? And I, I'm trying to make a, a reasonable comparison here. Think of if he's a Mayfoal and many of these other three-year-olds, I know there are other Mayfoals, but let's just say many of them are February, March. Let's go with February, though, just to really hammer home this point. As a three-year-old, you're effectively saying that the February foals are genuinely call it three and a half years old at this point you figure because we're in august almost you know they were born in february the three-year-old year they're they're effectively three and a half where a horse like authentic who was born in may he's uh, you know he's literally like five months younger i mean he's he's still very much a baby now if you compare that to humans think of a newborn compared to a five-month-old, or a five-month-old compared to a year-old. And I get it, the year-old, I'm fudging the numbers a little bit, seven months. But, I mean, there's, there's a tremendous difference in development there. And even think of a three-year-old compared to a two-and-a-half-year-old. I mean, there's, there is a, there's a gap there. And sometimes you get some kids that grow up a little bit faster than others do, and you get certain horses that grow up a little bit faster than others do. But the point, the point is, he's still got growing up to do, and I do think that him being one of the younger horses of his crop, I think that probably has something to do with it. Now, again, he just got kind of, uh, you know, looking around. I think that was the big thing when he floated off. You can see his head kind of cocked out to the outside, and then he eventually kind of straightens it out, but his ears are flopping and playing all over the place. And that, that to me, is not the sign of a horse that's tired. It's, it's the sign of a horse that is just looking all around. Keep in mind, it's also the first time he's ever been out of Southern California. First time away from Santa Anita, I believe, as far as afternoon racing is concerned. I don't know. I'd have to go back and look and see if he trains somewhere else. So I think two things can be true at the same time without him being a bum. Do I, I don't think he's a Kentucky Derby horse, but I also don't think that this was like a disastrous effort. Was it awesome? No. But it, I don't think, I, I think if you gave him more time to mentally develop, and who knows, maybe he'll never mentally put it together. But in all likelihood, you would assume he's going to get more mature, more professional, and something like this won't happen to him. If he has a three-length lead with an eighth of a mile to go, I would venture a guess to say in time, he's going to maintain that three-length lead. Uh, I would love to see them turn him back. Uh, I know a lot of people you know, will look at that and say, aren't you making the case that he's not a distance type of horse? No, I think he can do this. 
I think he's probably going to be better going a little bit shorter. I think he's a prime Breeders' Cup dirt mile type. Breeders' Cup Classic, I don't think I don't think it's going to work. And I certainly don't think the Kentucky Derby is going to work against 19 other horses, presumably. So that's where I stand on that. Give New York traffic credit. I don't think he's a superstar by any stretch of the imagination, but he tried. He tried really, really hard. I think he's a nice little horse, good grade two, grade three type. He's another one. I'm not totally convinced that the mile on an eighth is going to be his best game, but he's a nice little horse, and you got to give the connections credit for running there. Dr. Post, I've never loved him, but I also don't think you can judge him off of the Haskell because there was such a moderate pace at a track like Monmouth that typically his running style is not going to be ideal for a surface like that. I'll at least I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. I still don't love him. I think he's just fine. But for right now, I don't think you can really pass judgment on him based on this race at this track. That's all I have to say about that. CCA Oaks, I have even less to say. I don't think Tonal Shape is spectacular. But again, you shouldn't judge her off of the coaching club. Because getting pinched back early on, being a little bit keen, angling out into the clear, and being wide throughout and not kicking on... I'll, I'll give her a mulligan here, but I didn't love her going into it. I didn't think she's—I just don't think she's that good. I think she's fine. The problem is, I don't think any of the girls in that race are very good, and I would be—I would be stunned if any of those fillies had any say in the result the first Friday in May at Churchill Downs. I'd be stunned. The other girls that are there would need to regress so much, and these girls would need to improve so much to have any sort of ramifications on the Kentucky Oaks, in my opinion. And I, to be honest with you, I'll look it up right here on the fly. I don't even know what the figure came back. But when I just watched it, I said, I don't think we're seeing anything here. On, on paper, it didn't look like much. And I, if you want to say that perhaps the race turns out differently, if Tonalist Shape gets a better trip, and maybe. And, and, and maybe I'm just sort of stubborn in that I, I've never really liked her. I don't, I think she's fine. I mean, again, I, I don't, she, she does remind me a little bit of, New York traffic. She's fine. Good horse. Not a superstar. Um, of course, I'm typing in tonal shape as I'm talking about. Let's see, Paris Lights. You know, for a reasonably lightly raced horse, this wasn't a bad effort. You know, I'm not going to sit here and, and totally dump on it, but your fourth lifetime start, sure, you're a grade one winner now. You're in 87. I think you're just going to need to do a lot better than that. And I know it sounds contradictory, to what I talked about last week with my girl, she's she dares the devil. But I, I just, visually, I've seen a hell of a lot more from she dares the devil, despite the fact that she hasn't run particularly quick, as opposed to what we saw from this year's CCA Oaks. If you agree, disagree, let me know for both of these races beneath the video player on YouTube. Now, uh, two pieces from the Q&A, for this week anyway. Let's start off with Rich Weaver. And this is almost going to go back, if you're curious, and you can listen to uh, another sort of explanation on this whole thing in the Sport of Kings podcast that I, I was a guest on this past weekend, Scott Carson and Chris Larmy. Uh, Chris brought up, he asked me at the top about watching replays and what my sort of process is and the lead change piece. And I, first things first, will say if you are just strictly a paper player or a figure player or, or form and all that kind of jazz, visuals don't really mean anything to you. You don't really care. And that part, I, I that's that, that's just the nature of, of that style of handicapping. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. If you look at it on paper and your point is, this horse is the fastest or they're going to work out the best trip, I don't care if they're running backwards. 
they're the fastest doing this so be it and and that part i'm i'm not gonna argue with that i mean that that's that's how many many people play this game successfully if you're someone who is more into the visuals that's when a little bit more subjectivity comes into it as opposed to just the number is the number so i answered chris's question and i'm going to answer rich weaver's question rich weaver i had a question that i i'm sure you have discussed many times but i seem to always miss it what is the big deal with horses switching leads the left lead in the final 16th for art collector question mark I've tried to dissect it myself, and I'm just not sure what the big deal is, and you refer to it constantly, so I know you feel it is a big deal. Please help me understand. Also, I'm a My Race Horse, my race horse guy and have Authentic. I uh, need to give him a uh, round of applause. He goes into speaking about Authentic, who he is now a grade one winner. So congratulations, Rich. As far as the lead change piece is going to go, and some of you have heard this already, so you can just quick fast forward a, a minute or two if you don't want to hear it again. Okay, the lead change thing to me is it can go a few different ways for young horses when they the big piece with a lead change or an unnecessary lead change or popping back to the left lead or whatever it may be it's all about energy expended doing things and i i always try to bring up the comparison of mechanics for quarterbacks for uh, pitchers in baseball for anyone shoot for somebody shooting a jump shot in basketball men or women um Golf's a little bit of a, an anomaly, but the the idea is if you do everything picture perfect from a mechanical standpoint, your your mechanics are on cue. You're getting the absolute most out of what you have, and if you start doing things that aren't great mechanically, you're expending more energy than necessary now some horses can get away with it and some athletes human can get away with it just because they're that gifted talent wise from a horse standpoint i think of gun runner he can just do it because he's that good from a human athletic standpoint it only gets you so far and i i you know i'm trying to think offhand of someone who had just horrific mechanics that it didn't come back to bite him in the rear end I think of like a Tim Lincecum, for anybody that's a baseball fan. Tim Lincecum was about a buck fifty soaking wet, probably about five nine. And when he first was dominating, he threw, you know, high nineties. But he had an outrageous move. Like an outrageous move where you looked at it and you said, his arm's gonna fall off at some point. There's no way this is sustainable. And sure enough, his arm more or less fell off, uh, unfortunately for him. So the point there is. If you have poor mechanics, you're going to use up more energy than you should to perform whatever move you're moving, you're making. And it can also ultimately lead to an injury. And that's the other big piece for me with the lead change part. Okay. Not only could it be a sign of immaturity or, you know, tiredness or things like that, but it can be a harbinger of things to come physically so if a horse has done everything professionally turn them for home they switch over to the, the right lead and they stay on it and they've done this their entire career and then all of a sudden in whatever race it is or, or a workout or whatever they hit the top of the lane they change to the right lead and at the eighth pole or at the 16th pole they pop to the left lead and they haven't done that in i'm making it up 25 times prior combined races and workouts that to me is not a good thing typically if it ain't broke don't fix it well it, it wasn't 
you know, you get what I'm saying? Everything was fine. And then this happened. Why did this happen? Is it a physical problem? Are you trending off form? That sort of thing. Now, with a horse like Art Collector, and I'll also bring up a horse like Uncle Chuck, I'm going to, again, the subjectivity part of this becomes a major piece. I look at the two of them and say, especially with Uncle Chuck, but Art Collector can kind of fit this as well. They're still relatively lightly raced. So I think there's a little bit of immaturity. I think there's also a little bit of when you get that far ahead, and I was guilty about this with Nyquist, but there's also a part of me that feels like long term, I was actually kind of onto something. But Nyquist would always pop to his left lead. And there were a number of folks that pointed out that he was just so far ahead. They kind of lose a little bit of focus. They pop to the left lead. They think their job's done. Fine. I will you know, allow that as an argument. And I think it's accurate to a degree with some horses. But at the same time, I still don't want to see it. I still want to see the, the, the best mechanics that I can, the most professionalism that I can. And again, does it mean that these horses aren't going to run big and win races and do X, Y, and Z? No, not at all. I mean, we've seen horses do things unprofessionally and get it done. We've also seen horses never change leads and be very, very successful. But that, that's not the norm. So I think of, I think of, let's just use college football or let's just use uh, quarterbacks. So two of the better college football players of my lifetime, and I would say probably over the past 50 years, especially at the quarterback position, were Vince Young and Tim Tebow. And they both had just garbage mechanics throwing the football. But they could, get, they could do that at that level and be that successful. When the water got deeper, it didn't work because their accuracy wasn't there especially for accuracy was terrible for both of them. Vince Young at least had some steam on the ball, but he was throwing it from out here. And I get it. He was six, five, but, but throwing it down here when you're, you're effectively losing, let's call it a foot and a half. And especially when you're trying to throw over guys in front of you on the line that are six, seven, six, eight. And then you get the D lineman trying to put their hands up. The point is at some point, the mechanics got to him. Tim Tebow had the longest delivery. He looked like a pitcher. With a wind-up. That's not going to work in the NFL. You can see that at some point it came back to bite him. So when I see these prep races and I see horses do little things like pop to the left lead or they're late with the lead change, you know, they hang on the left lead until the eighth pole and then they swap over to the right lead. Didn't get them today, but what happens against better horses down the road? I factor that into my handicapping. Because I'm, I'm someone who looks at tape and I look at trends and patterns and say, you know what, they've never done this before and now they are doing it. Why? Or they've always done this, but they've done it against inferior company. Now what happens on the biggest stage? Is that going to come back to bite them? With inexperienced or younger horses, I'm going to be a little bit kinder and give them a little bit of time. But there will come a breaking point where I say, this is you're, you're clearly not putting it together and I think that could be a liability going forward. So, Rich, I hope that answers the question. And for anybody else that had the sort of questions, I also have a video out. You can find that on YouTube somewhere, just why lead changes are important and how to spot them. Because I know that's still something that a lot of people have a difficult time doing. Once you see it for the first time, you will never see a race again without it. You will, you will, your eye will just, once you see it, you know it forever. But I, I maintain, I think it's a very, very critical element. 
to watching races and perhaps predicting what could be coming down the road. So Rich, I hope that answered your question and congratulations on the win with Authentic. Only other piece uh, for this week, as far as the Q&A is concerned, and we'll get out of here. If I can find it. Bear with me. Bear with me. Bear with me. Where did it go? I just had it. This is making for lovely, lovely listening, I know. I'm sure. How how the hell did I lose this thing? Here we go. Alex Kerstetter. Kerstetter. I hope I pronounced that right, Alex. Matt, long-time listener and love the show. Can you touch on how to make your own morning line? Thanks. Alex, I think you... First, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. I think um, mistaken using morning line versus value line. So morning line, there's a, a morning line maker for each track. And the idea of the morning line is... I dropped my hat. It's a prediction of what the market is going to be come post time. What the off odds are going to be for these horses. So a morning line is nothing more than the individual's guess at what the final price is going to be. Now, a value line has nothing to do with that. A value line is what you deem fair odds on any given horse in any given race. The easiest way to do it is, and I'm just using a 10-horse race as an example because it's a nice round number. You have 100 points because there are are there's a 100% outcome where one of these horses wins. Okay, so each one of them is going to get points. You assign them points. Each one, you put them all together, the 10 horses, it has to total 100%. Now you can have three horses in the race that you give one percentage point, meaning if they run the race 100 times, you think that horse wins once. That translates to 99 to 1 odds because you're going to take the 100 Divide it by that number and subtract 1. 100 divided by 1 is 100 minus 1, 99 to 1. Some of the shorter prices are likely to end up in the 25% range. Okay, 25% is going to be a horse that you, by your estimation, they're going to win 25% of the time. So they run the race 100 times, they're going to win 25. 100 divided by 25 is 4. Subtract 1, it's 3. So ultimately, you're saying that horse, you believe, fair odds, are 3 to 1. Now, the best way to use this as a tool is to make a line for, and I'm not telling you to do it for every race. I think it's better if you do it for as many as you can. The more you do it, then the more you can get comfortable with just sort of eyeballing things and figuring things out. But the most precise way to do it, and I do this for the Breeders' Cup every year still. I price out every race top to bottom. You go through. Let's say you've made a horse 3 to 1, and you take a look at the tote board and the horse is 5 to 1. That's great value. Because the public is not suggesting that the horse is going to win 25% of the time the way that you are. The public is suggesting that the horse is going to win considerably fewer times. Okay, If you're just looking at it from a round number standpoint, we're roughly looking at 17% with a 5 to 1 shot. So by your accounts, the horse is actually going to win 8 more times in that 100 race sample as opposed to what the public says at 17. That's a great wagering opportunity if you believe that. The other thing you always need to factor in and keep in mind is there's a reason that favorites win more often than long shots do because they're better horses. So don't don't go crazy by saying just because you might like a longer shot in a race, don't give them more credit than they deserve. You can still really like a long shot 
that realistically should be, let's say, 15 to 1. But just because you like the horse, don't go overboard and say, oh, you know, this horse is going to win. I'm making it up 8% of the time. That translates to 12 to 1 odds or 11 to 1 odds right in that ballpark. You get into the half percentages. Don't get overzealous on the actual reality that a horse is going to win a race just because you like them. You need to be very objective with this sort of exercise to have any kind of success with it. So I hope I did a good job of explaining how you come to that conclusion. 100 divided by whatever you say they're going to run this race 100 times. I think this horse wins. Uh, I'm making it up. Let's say let's say 20, 20 out of 100. 100 divided by 20 is 5. Minus 1 is 4. You think that horse, fair odds, 4 to 1. And how to use that, I would suggest... Anything less than four to one is not fair. You think it's too short. You don't think the horse is going to win as much as the public does. Anything above that, and again, if you're like a disciple of the Barry Meadow sort of school of thought, you know, in a perfect world, you're going to get 50% on top of your odds. So let's say you think it, the horse should be four to one. Realistically, you should be betting at six to one because you need to factor in. You're going to be wrong sometimes. You're going to lose. So you want that 50% built in. So you can make up for the losses and then some. I hope that makes sense. Thank you for the question. Thank you for the comment. Thank you for listening uh, throughout the years here, Alex. And thank you to all of you who have been listening. And thank you to Tommy Seafeld, guest for this week's Friday feature. Saratoga Race 8, if you want to be in Tommy's position next Monday, leave your answer, your selection for the race beneath the video player here on YouTube. Um, those of you that have watched on YouTube, you already know how to get here. Those of you that are curious about watching on YouTube, Go into that search bar, Matt Burney, or show you find this one, as well as the other 23 episodes that we have here uh, in the Money Media. If you listen podcast and audio only, you have Apple Podcasts, you have Android device, you have InTheMoneyPodcast.com. Uh, I would encourage you to head on over to InTheMoneyPodcast.com regardless, because there's good write-ups over there. There's also a new newsletter that's coming out. All sorts of great things going on, InTheMoneyPodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at Bernier underscore Matt, I will be back on Monday. Talk about some racing. Talk about some other stuff. If you have, uh, let's you know, story time. Horse heroes. Who's the horse that got you involved? Let me know beneath the video player on YouTube, as well as any other races or horses or thoughts that I may have missed, as well as Q and A. Any questions you want to talk? Just chop it up. Let me know beneath, and we'll fire it up for next week. So, until next Monday. Good luck. However you play, whatever you play, and wherever you play. This has been episode 24 of the Matt Bernier Show.